Who is God? How would you answer that question? I think that if we got a whole bunch of Bible-believing Christians together in a room and asked them that question, who is God, uh, we would be talking for quite a long time. The reason being is that our language is limited to describe a God who is limitless. Who is God is a big question to ask. So let's say we did that. We got together with a whole bunch of Christians and we asked that question, who is God? What would be some of the first things we'd hear? Well, somebody might say that God is a loving father. And that would be absolutely right. We love the fact that God is a loving father, that he cares for us, that he's near to us when everything in the world is wrong. But I wonder how long in that conversation would it take before somebody said that God was a fearful judge? You see, we really like the idea of God being a loving father, and we should. But how do we feel about the idea of God being a fearful judge? I mean, after all, the Bible does say in many different places, as we'll see, that we should fear the Lord. But as we look at our passage today, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21, Peter uses both of these descriptions. He does call God a father, but he also refers to God as a judge whom we should fear. And I want to argue that when these Christians, these persecuted, suffering Christians, received this letter, I believe that they would have found the idea that God is a fearful judge just as comforting to them as the idea that God is is a loving father. That might be hard to believe. But here's what I mean. The fact that God is a loving father, that he is good and he cares for us, means that he is near to us and close to us even when everything in the world is going wrong. But the fact that God is a fearful judge means that he has the power to make everything wrong right again. It would be so encouraging and comforting for these Christians to understand that God was a loving father, but just as encouraging and comforting to understand that he was a fearful judge. Today in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21, go ahead and open up your Bibles there. It's going to force us to really grapple with and wrestle with this question. What does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it mean for us to fear the Lord? And it's my prayer. And by the time we get to the end of this passage, uh, we're going to have a better understanding of what that means. It's my prayer that we won't want to push the fear of the Lord off into the shadows, but rather we would understand what it means so that we can celebrate what it reveals about God to us. And then at the end, I think we will see that the fear of the Lord not only makes sin unthinkable, but it makes the fear of everything else (laughs) irrational. So be free, will you pray with me? And then we will dive in to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. And Father, we, though we cannot gather, long for the day that we can. We long for the day that we can be together in the same place once again, worshiping you elbow to elbow. Um, but Lord, we know that even now, even in our separate homes across Uh, the Lakes region, and even other people across the country and the world tuning in, Father, we know uh, that you are being honored and praised as one church, that that we are able to join together in worship now because you, Father, are not limited by space like we are. You can hear our praise and our prayers 
no matter where we are. So Father, thank you for the unity we share as a church. And we pray that as we look at these words together, we would grow together as a church. Grow to have a better understanding of what it means to love you and to fear you and how both those things are good. So Father, challenge us this morning. Grow us this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. We're going to look at the first four, four verses first. But rather than me just reading it to you and explaining it to you, let me show you what I mean. Here it is. Here in verse 18, Peter talks about the feudal ways inherited from your fathers. Here what Peter is talking about is something that we often call sin nature or original sin. The fact is that when Adam and Eve, our original parents, sinned, and when they rebelled against God, they, we say, fell. Sin entered into their hearts. It broke their desires. They, they started wanting what was evil, what was sinful, what was perverse. And ever since that day, sin has just become a family characteristic for us. All of us have sin literally in our blood. And so every single person who has ever been born has been enslaved to sin, controlled by sin, and deserving to be judged for that sin. This is something we see all over the Bible. Specifically in the book of Romans in the New Testament. Romans chapter 5 verse 19 says that by one man's disobedience, so Adam at the tree in the garden, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So in other words, because Adam sinned, the whole world fell. Us along with it. Sin is in our blood. Romans chapter 3, 23, all have sinned. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, none are righteous, no, not one. All of us are enslaved to sin. And I love what John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We can't deny it. Sin is in our nature. And even if you feel like it's not fair that we would be judged for Adam's sin, just take a minute and look at your own life and acknowledge the fact that we sin too. We choose sin in one way or another almost every single day of our lives. Everyone ever born was born with a genetic predisposition to sin. Sin is in our hearts. It's in our blood. Let's look back at this passage again, because right here in verse 18, Peter says that you were ransomed from the feudal ways. You were ransomed from the feudal ways. And this word ransom here is really important, because it's a word that they would use in that day to refer to the setting free of a slave, or the, the buying and releasing of a slave. It's telling us that while everyone is enslaved to sin, controlled by sin, deserving to be judged for sin, someone paid the price for our freedom. Somebody paid the price required to give us our liberty. Someone paid our ransom. And do you know what it cost to buy our ransom? Do you know what they had to pay? Well, let's look back at verse 18. They did that not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with something eternally more precious. They did that with the precious blood of Christ, <laughs> like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Our freedom from slavery to sin could not be bought with money. It's chump change. 
Money could not pay the price necessary to set us free from bondage to sin. The only thing that could possibly set us free, that could ransom us, that could redeem us, that could let us go from the power and the grip of sin is the life of the Son of God. That is the only hope we have. A perfect spotless sacrifice sent to die in our place. And that's exactly what happened at the cross. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to set us free from judgment so that we could be free to live with him. And the thing is, be free. That was the plan all along. Let's read verses 20 and 21 here at the end. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest at the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So let's get this straight. We are enslaved to sin. We are deserving to be punished for our sin. But God looks at you and says to himself, I love him. I love her. I want to be in a relationship with so he looks a little bit closer and he recognizes that there's a price tag hanging off your soul. And he takes it and he turns it over and he sees that the price that he would have to pay in order to have you, to have a relationship with you, is nothing short than the blood of his son, than the life of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. And he looks at that price tag and he says to himself, I'll pay that. That's worth it for me. For relationship with them, with the one that I love, I will even give the life of my son. I love them that much. And the thing is, God didn't pay this infinitely high price for relationship with you because you were a good investment. He didn't do it just because you were so gosh darn cute. You were broken. You cost him the life of his son, but it was worth it to him because of his love for you. That's radical, but that's the good news. God's radical love for you is shown by the radical cost at the cross. And the more we understand how undeserving we are of Christ's love, the more amazing his love becomes to us. The more we understand how much it cost him, the more we understand how radical his sacrifice was and how intimately and deeply he desires a relationship with us. When we put our trust and our hope in the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us on the cross, we become children of God. We are redeemed. We are set free. We are washed clean from all our sin. That's the good news that, we're talk that we see right here in these last four verses of this passage. It's the good news that we talk about every single week as a church. Because it is at the absolute heart of everything we believe. The heart of everything we are is at the, hope, is at the heart of the hope we have in Him that he died on the cross in our place to set us free. And that is the message of verses 18 to 21. That's the message that Peter is reiterating yet again to these Christians in modern day Turkey. But now we want to turn our attention for the rest of our time together to verse 17. Because while verse 18 through 21 looks at what Jesus did in the past, Verse 17 looks at what he is doing 
now. It turns his attention to the future. Or sorry, to the present. So let's look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Let me, let me read that again. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. So if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, then God is your father. Yes, we need to remember that. By faith in Christ, God has adopted us as his children. He is our father. Amen. But also here it says more specifically that he is the father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. He's the father who loves you. But he's also the judge who judges impartially. And that word impartial, uh, impartially should make us quiver because the point that that word is getting at is that no matter how much God loves you, it will not prevent him from judging you according to your sin. No matter how much God loves you, his love alone will not prevent him from judging you according to your deeds. And so because of that, Peter urges here, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Fear. What do you do with that word here? I thought God was God of love. How can he also be a God that we're meant to fear? Because don't forget, Peter, here, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to people who have put their trust solely in the blood of Jesus Christ, who are counting on Jesus' death in their place to set them free from bondage to sin. So why do we keep fearing? How does fear mix together with love? Does that somehow sound wrong to you? I think that sometimes we make a mistake as, as the church today. Uh, in jumping straight to God's love and forgetting fear. Because make no mistake, the Bible does teach both. God is a God who loves us and whom we are called to love. Amen. That is good. That is true. That is 100% what the Bible teaches. But he's also a God whom we should fear. And I think we struggle with that because we don't understand how those two things fit together. Right? How can God be a loving father and at the same time a judge whom we should fear? How does that work? But while we struggle with this, while we struggle to live in the tension of these two truths, we have to recognize the Bible doesn't. The Bible doesn't struggle with it. The Bible doesn't see these as contradictions. He's, the Bible sees both the love of God and our fear of God as complementary truths that fit together. Let me read you just a couple passages. Proverbs 28. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. Blessed is he. Psalm 112. How joyful are those who fear the Lord. 
The writer of that psalm fits it together. Nehemiah chapter 1, 11. Listen to this one. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Delight to fear your name. Psalm chapter one, or sorry, chapter two, verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I love that one. Rejoice with trembling. Psalm 34, 19. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. I mean, we could go on, but I think you get the point. While we struggle to fit together love and fear in our minds, the Bible doesn't struggle. The Bible sees love and fear as two truths that fit perfectly together. And while we struggle to fit them together, I think what it reveals to us is that we're missing something about God. There's something about God we're misunderstanding. We're not thinking about God the way the Bible thinks about God. (laughs) And that should make us fear a little bit. Because we want to know who our God is. So let's wrestle with this question. How do these two things fit together? How is God a God of love and a God to whom we should fear? To get to the heart of that, let me tell you a story. I want you to imagine a group of fishermen. Somewhere up Stonington, Maine, perhaps north on the main coast, and they're hardened sailors. They're in their 50s. They've been sailors since their 20s. So they've seen a thing or two. They've gone through, through a few storms in their day. But this morning, it seems like a normal Monday morning. It's foggy. And so they can't see very far. They can't really tell what weather is happening above the clouds when they start heading out to sea. And as they're going, the fog starts clearing And they look up and they realize that they have just walked into a storm unlike any storm they've ever seen before. And within seconds, the storm hits them. Buckets start pouring down on them, blowing sideways. The wind starts raging. The waves start crashing over the deck. And all of a sudden, they're disoriented and turned around. Because of the storm, they can't tell where the sun is. They can't tell which way is north, south, east, or west. Even though they have decades of experience, they have never experienced a storm like this. And while they, didn't know, while they don't know which direction to turn in order to get back to land, one thing they do know is that if they don't get back to land soon, they will be at the bottom of the ocean. And then all of a sudden, one of the fishermen on the deck, he looks out and he sees just the faintest glimpse of light. Just the faintest glimmer of light. And that little beacon of light means hope for them. Because they might be in the midst of the storm, but they know what direction to go. And so with all their energy, they put into it getting that boat back to land. Getting that boat back to harbor. And they make it. And they run out of their boat. And they run to the closest shelter they can find, which is a little pub right on the seacoast. And when they walk in... The contrast couldn't be any more stark. While the wind was blowing and it was cold and they were wet out there in the pub, it is warm and it is dry. There's a fire crackling in the stove, there's soft music playing, the light is warm and low. And so the fishermen, they make their way over to the stove and they sit down 
Um, and as the, the, the feeling starts re-entering their limbs, they sit there in awe of what they just walked through. They're amazed they're alive. And the waitress brings over hot cups of coffee. And as they sit there sipping their coffee, warming up near the stove, they look back out the window. And as they do, they are overwhelmed with gratitude for the shelter they've found. Overwhelmed with gratitude that they made it back to this safe place. But at the same time, they look out that window and they tremble at the power of the storm. They tremble at the might of the storm that they have been rescued from. And be free, this is a picture of the fear of the Lord. Because we were out to sea without hope. We were out to sea without hope. We were born with sin in our blood. And we all sinned by nature. And our God, who is a good, holy, perfect judge, he couldn't look at our sin and just ignore it. He couldn't turn a blind eye to it. Just like a good human earthly judge can't let a guilty convict go unpunished, our good God could not allow us to, to sin without receiving punishment for it. But then with the message, the good news of Jesus Christ, we're given this glimpse of light, this beacon of hope. And we run to him. We take shelter under his blood, and just like these fishermen, the contrast couldn't be more stark. <laughs> we go from hopeless to rescued. We go from enemies of God to beloved sons and daughters of God. We go from being dead to being alive. And now, as Christians, we sit overwhelmed with gratitude for the shelter we found in the blood of Jesus Christ. We sit overwhelmed by the life we've been given, but at the exact same time, we look out and we still tremble at what we've been saved from. That's what it means to fear the Lord, to have an awe-filled fear. We tremble, but we tremble with joy, with fear mixed with joy. We say to ourselves, oh, his wrath is strong. But oh, his saving love is sweet. Oh, how terrible are his judgments, but oh, how great is the salvation that we found. Oh, how he rages against his enemies, but oh, how good it is to be his child. By faith, we stand now with a trembling pleasure, with a joyful quivering. And as Mr. Beaver says about Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, our God is not safe, but he is good. Now, what if God was a loving father, but not a fearful judge? What if he is only a loving father? Well, if God was a loving father, he'd be like a really sweet, kind, cosmic grandma, right? If he was only a loving father, he could be with us in our pain. He could comfort us. He could send us a birthday check but he couldn't do anything about everything wrong in the world. He would have no teeth. But let's turn it around. What if God was a cosmic judge, a fearful judge, but not a loving father? He would be terrible. We, we would hide from that God, but the good news, be free, is that God is both of those things. 
and so much more. <laughs> he is loving father and he is fearful judge. And because of that, we joyfully quiver. We hide, but we hide in him. And we do not run away from him, but rather we run to him. Because it's only in him that we can find shelter from our sins and the wrath that our sins deserve. God is a loving father. He is a fearful judge at the exact same time. So be free. How does fearing God change your life today, practically? How does the fear of the Lord change the way you live now? I think it's a question we need to ask. Is this just something uh, for Christians back in the 1500s to believe? Does it actually shape the way that we live today? Well, I think there's two main ways that the fear of the Lord shapes and changes our walk with Him today. Number one, fearing God makes sin unthinkable. And number two, fearing God makes fear of everything else irrational. Fearing God makes sin unthinkable, and fearing God makes fear of everything else irrational. So let's look at the first one. The fear of God makes sin unthinkable. Imagine one of those sailors in that warm pub drinking coffee says to the other sailors, you know, I think I'm going to go back out in that storm. I think I'm going to go back out and try to get more, a few more fish before this day is over. How would the other sailors respond? They'd look at him like he was crazy. They would beg him and plead with him not to go back out in that storm. They'd say to him, well, just think about it. It's not worth it. Your life is not worth just a few more fish. It's the same thing for us with the fear of the Lord. If we say as Christians that we want to go back to sin, we should look at one another like we're crazy, right? We should plead with one another saying, please do not do it. Do not re-embrace the very thing you've been saved from. A joyful, off-filled fear of the Lord makes sin sound stupid. It's irrational. It's unthinkable. The fear of the Lord drives us, rather, and motivates us, rather, to fight for holiness and for sanctification. That's what Philippians chapter 2 is talking about when it talks about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's the fear of the Lord that makes sin sound stupid. It makes sin irrational. And so that's the first way that the fear of the Lord shapes our lives today as Christians. The fear of the Lord makes sin unthinkable. And number two, the fear of God makes fear irrational. The fear of the Lord makes fear of everything else irrational. When we have an awe-filled fear of the Lord, all of our other fears grow strangely dim. They tend to shrink. They tend to diminish. And th this is what the Bible says all over the place, actually. Let me read a couple passages. These are beautiful. Really listen closely. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10 says this. Do not fear, for I am with you. 
Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. <laughs> I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Proverbs 14, 26. Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress. And for their children, it will be a refuge. Proverbs 19, 23. Fear the Lord. Sorry, fear of the Lord leads to life. And he who has it rests satisfied. You might be afraid of dogs, but if there was a ferocious bulldog in front of you showing its teeth and snarling, you would not fear if you had a pet lion. That's the way we need to understand the fear of the Lord. Yes, man might be able to hurt me, but I have a God who is so much bigger than those men. Yes, coronavirus might be able to hurt me, but I have a God who is so much bigger than that virus. That's the message of Psalm chapter 18, verse 6 here, when it says that the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So be free. You have a God who is mighty and who is strong, who is good and loving, and, but who is a mighty, fearful judge. What can the world do to you? You are safe. And it's because of this that I think that the idea of God being a fearful judge would have been just as encouraging as the idea of God being a loving father to the original readers of this letter. And so be free, I just want to ask, is it to you? Do you understand what it means to find comfort and protection in the fear of the Lord? It's my prayer, be free, that God would help us understand that he is a loving father and a consuming fire. That in him we rejoice, but we rejoice with trembling. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for being just that. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for our love, for the love that you've given to us, Father. But then also, thank you for being a God who doesn't take sin lightly, who is committed to dealing with all the wrong things in the world. God, we praise you for that too. But we praise you most of all, Lord, for the fact that you are both loving Father and fearful judge. That you love us, but you deal with sin. And so, therefore, that you dealt with our sin by pouring out your wrath on Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, thank you for the sacrifice you made. That we are rescued, but we still tremble with the awe-filled fear of how awesome and mighty you are. And I pray, Father, that because of that, now that we have a better grasp of that, that we would see sin as stupid, sin as irrational. And that everything else in the world that we fear would be as irrational as well, Lord. May we find rest and peace even as we tremble with joy. So Father, we give this all to you and we praise you. Remind us of who you are continually. Grow our understandings of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.